0: it is precisely because our contemporary moment it's is so emphatically unprecedented that we can possibly make sense of it only through through such speculation and through such seemingly implausible propositions. Uh, however, having said that, I should also tell our listeners that the speculations that they will encounter in the work are not completely unhinged, as it were, from the everyday worlds one is familiar with. That was Abhishek Hazra, I am Igor Ramirez. And this is Stage. I believe that humanity, as a whole, is being confronted with reality in an unprecedented way. The future is here. And it comes along with pressing questions we need to ask ourselves now. Our guest host, environmental journalist Aruna Chandrasekha, addresses some of them in this episode as season 2 of Stage slowly comes to an end. Namely, the politics of breath. I'll leave you now with Aruna.
1: Breath, life, death. It's pretty basic this cycle. And yet when each day is a struggle to breathe, it's easy to forget until the next sneezing fit. We're often browbeaten into dismissing air as ethereal and not political, when it is everything but. Is the atmosphere a great equalizer or the greatest polarizer? For months, India scrambled for oxygen cylinders as even its most connected citizens breathed their last outside hospitals, waiting for ventilator beds. Fumes of hundreds of burning bodies and firewood, mixed with a daily dose of traffic and industrial emissions in India's cities and towns, most visibly in Delhi, where each child is born a chain smoker. Hello and welcome to Articulate Matter, a podcast about the politics of breath. Very shortly, we'll be listening to speakers, including journalist and poet from Jharkhand, Jacinta Karketa, public health researcher Shweta Narayan, and ecosystem scientist from the University of Oxford, Professor Yadwinder Mali. I'm your host, Aruna Chandrasekhar, an environmental journalist with Bucking Bronkai, based in the city of Bombay, examining the subtext behind artist Abhishek Hazra's Aerosol Chronicles, Umlajan Capture Protocol. If you're watching and listening to Aerosol Chronicles, you must probably be asking yourself, A podcast within a podcast within a podcast and you'd be right this work is as meta as it gets but that's abhishek for you abhishek hazra is a visual artist based in bangalore india who draws deeply from histories of science while using speculative fiction to explore our interconnectedness the artwork and how it relates to listeners is a personal journey through ratified debates around emissions the colonization of the commons. And Hazra presents us with an intrepid fictional artist, Bijarito, using objects to illustrate some of the key contentions in environmental discourse today. Mass extinctions, oxygen wars, the extraction of traditional knowledge, carbon capture, and technology as a silver bullet. The Anthropocene, as a term, is an attempt to define a new geological epoch where unmitigated human activity has undeniably changed our interactions with the natural world, fundamentally altering the earth system with consequences for all life. Consequences that will and are making themselves felt in this century and those to come. With us is Professor Yadvinder Mali of the University of Oxford. Dr. Mali leads the Ecosystems Program of the Environmental Change Institute at Oxford University, which encompasses a broad spectrum of research on ecosystems, ranging from the natural sciences through to social sciences, policy, and governance. Professor Mali, why is there such a debate around the term anthropocene? Is it Useful at all to give a new error a name? What questions can wayback geology and deep time pose to contemporary politics and environmentalism in a world on fire?
2: The Anthropocene was a concept that needed inventing that I think emerged in the 80s and 90s onwards. And I found myself also in the situation of you know wanting to describe multiple pressures on the environment that were around climate change around habitat loss, around pollution, Yeah, I think there's a number of ways that a, a, a geological deep time perspective helps. One is that it puts the present into the context of Earth history, so rather than just being on the timescales of one or two generations of humanity, or even several generations of humanity, you start seeing that the change is significant on the scale of thousands or millions or tens of millions of years and therefore very likely to be altering the Earth in some fundamental way. So I think it embeds humanity into the wider history of the Earth. And the other thing is when you look back in time, you see an Earth and an environment that is quite variable and quite fluctuating in climate. And we realize that the last 10,000 years have been an unusually stable period of the history of the Earth period in which human civilization has developed and grown and has become accustomed to a stable climate. Uh, The the famous paleoclimatologist Wally Broker captured this well, describing the climate system. He was talking about the climate in particular as some great sleeping beast. And it's been sleeping for 10,000 years. And we're poking that system at our peril. And I think it's an appreciation of how variable and volatile this planet is in terms of the mythology rather than seeing Mother Nature as this benign, nourishing mother. If you go back to the idea of Gaia in the original Greek myths, Gaia is this very ferocious, volatile creature that devours her own children. And, and if you look at Hindu mythology and ideas like Kali as well, you see Mother Nature also having this very fearsome aspect as well as this very benign aspect. And I think this is what geological perspective alerts us to as well.
1: How do you see science integrating and acknowledging that indigenous knowledges are essential to any knowledge production, more so in vulnerable countries led by anti-science governments.
2: I think that there are two aspects of indigenous knowledge that are extremely valuable as we try and understand this challenge. And one is the practical indigenous knowledge, the knowledge of the ecology, the species, the behaviors in the local environment that through generations have been observed and often accumulated in rituals and practice. And there's a lot of insight to be gained from that directly. But I think the other part is more the philosophical indigenous knowledge, which is ways of seeing the world, ways that different languages can capture different aspects of the nature of reality, uh, the way that philosophies that are perhaps more animist, that bring in perspectives of how to relate to other organisms, how to treat other organisms, are there.
1: What are your thoughts on life sciences and environmental activism? That is, scientists and conservationists being threatened with loss of access to data, to field sites, or smear campaigns for speaking up.
2: I think uh, in the environmental sciences in particular, there's quite a a long tradition of engaging, because ultimately environmental science is is a societal issue. That's why people are drawn to that discipline because it has consequences for thinking of society. I think that's where the real work is, because I think now the issue is not lack of scientific knowledge of the environmental challenge. There's enough, There's more to find out, but we know enough. The real challenge is understanding how societies can move and be nudged and change, how the economic environmental model can be moved into something new different and, and I think that is something that there's no easy answers to but I think that those are the real questions of our time.
1: How do you nudge societies still hooked to the old economic environmental model and actively disinclined to change no matter what the human cost? All science is only as good as the data on hand and there's an urgent need to fill the blind spots, places where politicians would rather we not look. Shweta Narayan is an environment and public health researcher who works with Healthcare without harm. In the last several years, she's helped Adivasi and Dalit communities monitor the unmonitored, the health impact of industrial pollution, and especially the fallout of India's addiction to coal. From the ever-widening mines of the central Indian state of Chhattisgarh to coastal villages in Chennai's first ward that are submerged in coal ash, This is research that has helped draw a line in the sand. India's green courts were forced to sit up and take notice of this damning evidence after years of protests and litigation by communities striving for environmental justice. Shweta, you've been such a strong independent voice in public health, especially looking at the impacts of industrial extraction, be it in Bhopal, Chhattisgarh or Chennai. What do you see as connections between caste, climate, environmental and health crises?
3: I would just say that the marginalized communities anywhere in the world and in India, and when I say marginalized, I mean economically, socially, and politically, and mostly then there are communities that are from backward class or SCSTs, scheduled tribe and scheduled caste. These are the communities that are worst hit, be it the climate issue, the environmental um, problems or any of the pollution-related or developmental-related problems. It is environmental racism. In the in the north, you will find uh, people of color being most marginalized or have or or live around the most toxic facilities, uh, most uh, poisonous um, uh, facilities. In India, you will see people from SC, ST, or OBC communities that are the recipients of the most toxic most uh, untested technologies in, in, in a lot of sense uh, when it comes to industrialized projects. Just to give you an example, I mean, in, in any city, look at any city, how the city develops and look at the garbage dumps of those cities. They would not be in the most influential part of the city. Like, for example, in Chennai, the garbage dump is in the northern part of the city in a place called Kodingur, or in the southern part of the city in a place called Palikarne. It is not in Poest Garden where our late chief minister used to live. It is not in Besanaga, which is one of the upper class communities in in the south uh, suburbs. Earlier, it was suburbs. Now it's almost very much part of the city. But it's it's all always the the dirtiest facilities, the dirtiest um, technologies, the dirtiest industries are always in the margins. Because uh, I think uh, the the thinking of the policymakers, the perverse thinking of policymakers, are these places are. I mean, they can be sacrificed. These are our sacrifice zones for development. And when when you you interact with those communities, uh, they are actually told that these, these industries will bring in development. But for the sake of development, their contribution would be the quality of the air or the quality of their lives.
1: How do you see the current situation unfolding in India's industrialized hinterlands, especially given the chasm between medical infrastructure and development promised over the years? Do you think it's fair to apply the term environmental racism or casteism in India? And why is public health only entering the conversation now?
3: In fact, what COVID crisis the way it's unfolding in the industrial hinterlands in India is also a a curtain raiser for what the climate crisis or whatever we think of of a climate crisis would be like in all these marginalized areas. For example, in Bhopal. Bhopal is still the world's worst industrial disaster. It still has survivors who have not been uh, provided the basic life with justice and dignity. The area is still contaminated. People are still exposed to poisons in their ground and in their water. All these issues, even after 37 years now, remains unsolved. Now, the gas survivors we knew that were more vulnerable to even uh, a pandemic like COVID. What was the preparation? Nothing. There were deaths that were happening on a daily basis in double, triple digits, and they did not get the attention. I mean, look at the coverage that Delhi has gotten. And for that matter, and that kind of unfortunate media attention, even with the air pollution crisis, people only talk about Delhi as if Delhi is the worst polluted area. It is no doubt about it that the pollution levels in Delhi is high. But when you think of the largest scheme of things with all the industrialized areas in the country, we have places which not many people would have heard of, which is Singarali in Uttar Pradesh, Korba in Chhattisgarh, Raigarh in Chhattisgarh, or Enor in North Chennai in Tamil Nadu. These places have same levels or even more higher levels of PM 2.5, which has made Delhi so notorious in their areas throughout the year, almost. But have you ever heard
1: of these names? Korba and Raigarh are names of Adivasi districts in central India, host to some of the country's biggest coal fields, and protected by the fifth schedule of India's constitution, that has provisions to safeguard against the alienation of Adivasi land. Adivasi's count for 8% of India's population would make up about 40% of people displaced by development projects since India became a republic. That number is around 24 million people. Let that sink in. That's roughly the current population of Australia. As geology would have it, and pretty much every narrative about what a resource curse is, there is an unfortunate overlap between India's mineral, energy and forest maps and the place that this 8% call home. India is the third largest producer and consumer of coal in the world, which is the source of two-thirds of its energy. This podcast, powered by coal. If you're listening in on your phone from India, probably powered by coal too. It really is around us. Um, but many of us fail to acknowledge the origins of coal, of steel, of aluminium, of limestone, and the ores that lives and forests are felt for, so that we may build and run our cities and benefit from development that others are forsaken for. Through the pandemic, when most of India's big cities gasped, Oxygen was dispatched from the eastern and central parts of the country that have traditionally been forsaken for steel and coal plants. The impact of the pandemic on them is barely visible because of the tyranny of distance that many media people like to call it, used to stories being framed in political corridors of power by those proximate to mining interests. At a time when coal should be going out of style and when the economy is on a serious downturn, India still can't seem to get enough of it, even when studies show that there's no demand for more. Jacinta Kerketta is a writer, poet and journalist from Jharkhand's West Singhbhum district. Her village is very close to the Saranda forest, the biggest sal forest in all of Asia. Once prime elephant habitat, the forest is now being fragmented and carved up into iron ore blocks while its original inhabitants must prove their constitutionally guaranteed right to dissent and say no to these plans, But in order to do so, they must hunt for scraps of paper to prove that the forest is indeed theirs, that they have a right over it and that they have a say over it. Jacinta's poems capture the anger and rage of young Adivasis lured and failed by a system that has only brought dust and ruin and taken away land. As a poet and journalist who has spoken out about the connection between caste and extraction, how do you see the current situation unfolding in Jharkhand and the overlap of land, pollution and Covid crises? Whenever the government or corporates or upper class people look at Adivasi areas, the only thing they see is resources. How can resources be looted from these districts? The kind of people in this country who place their rights above all others wonder how they can trample on the rights of others. Whoever is part of a marginalised group in society, be it Dalit or Adivasi, whenever they are approached in the name of development, they are first evicted and displaced for resources. Schemes that are few and far between are introduced in their name to keep them silent and satisfied. Adivasis who live in the interior regions are hunted down for access to their resources and at some level, caste and class are at work to make this happen. This mindset 100% works in their favor. When people on top, when they feel they have violated us or ask themselves, what are we doing? That's when they bring in schemes in the name of the environment, in the name of Adivasi development or Dalit development or bring in some project in an affected district. But the perspective of Adivasi life that is never supported by the mainstream, they're unable to understand it. Adivasi struggles are not just fights about our identity, but to save the whole environment, the whole country, and the whole world. Even in disparate struggles in different pockets of the country, the goals and the perspective are comprehensive and holistic, but people are unable to understand this. Especially in these COVID times, we try to ask, this development you talk about in the end, where has this led you to? People are starting to understand how important it is to protect the environment. You might have air to breathe, but if your body has lost its immunity or its ability to breathe that air, then whoever benefits from class or caste or the loot of resources, there is no meaning. A lot of people's eyes are opening, and the Adivasi, the issues he has been talking about for so many years. Now these issues are what people the world over are trying to loudly raise their voices in protest against. But if you see that, the Adivasi life perspective, even after talking about it for decades, they are never given the credit for it. That we have taken this from Adivasi areas or we have learned this from the Adivasis. This is another appropriation in the name of saving the planet. And this also is rooted in mainstream mindsets that doesn't go away so easily. This way, if I look at class struggle or caste struggle or development in the name of uprooting Adivasis, displacing Adivasis, or looting Adivasis, this dark history continues. After us, you people have started talking about Adivasi issues. But now upper class, middle class people are starting to understand the core values of what Adivasis are talking about and fighting for. And now everyone is talking about their issues and standing with them. I think the fight of Adivasis is therefore not only about their own identity, but it is also a fight about larger things. When throughout the country people become aware and understand, they will stand for Adivasi issues, for protecting nature, for protecting the environment, and I think this way people will be able to rise to save our earth and mankind. Jacinda, do you think it's fair with what you've seen, with what you've experienced to apply the term environmental racism or casteism in India, especially with respect to Adivasis and Dalits who live in resource rich regions? Whenever you snatch the resources of Adivasis, the responsibility of any mining company to make this land cultivable again or to restore the environment, that has never happened. Whatever benefits you can get from minerals, whether snatched in the name of national interest or development, or whether it's rooted to giving facilities for people living in the cities, but Adivasis and Dalits who live there The worst impact has always been on them because they live in the mining districts, they have to bear the pollution burden, they have to endure their entire lives becoming a living hell. When people talk about development in this country, they forget that Adivasis and Dalits live in this country. Development as we know it is destruction these hazards from mines factories are largely borne by adivasis and dalits i do feel that this is a kind of apartheid and discrimination that the kind of development we are seeing is definitely racism and this continues unabated it has settled in the mindset that these are the people who will suffer and bear the destructive side effects of development I often feel that there's a lack of stories and an appropriation of narratives or the romanticization of Adivasi struggles without an appreciation for the art, politics, or mythologies of Adivasi resistance. And it's something that I feel even I'm guilty of. How do you see this play out? And how can these imbalances be corrected? The media is in the hand of the mainstream and reading and writing culture is also in their hands. Their mindset of who we are writing for infiltrates their perspective on Adivasi issues. If their mindset is that they are writing for the upper class or for the cities, the perspective is top-down and not bottom-up, not let us understand how Adivasis are living or what they are feeling. So often, whatever is written about Adivasis is often not correct. This understanding exists that this is not an understanding informed by adivasi perspectives. They look at things in bits and pieces. There is no understanding in how things are connected. So whenever they talk about the environment, they talk about the environment that exists after removing adivasis. They think plants and trees are the environment or that wild animals they have developed an attachment to are the environment and the only things worth saving. Because of their failure to look at things holistically and in connection, they are unable to understand adivasis. The same in art and how adivasis are depicted. The conversations that I've been lucky to have here help tie together pieces of the pollution debate we've learned that systemic inequality is the engine of our extraction economies driven by fossil fuels, that environmental justice is a crucial part of climate justice, and that indigenous communities were the first canaries of the coal mine, calling attention to our volatile planet that's at risk of spinning out of balance what could have been its most stable period. Now, if only we'd look up from our screens and pay attention to all the ways in which we're connected connections that we still haven't understood enough. And with that, dear listeners, I hope you enjoyed Articulate Matter. Before I, your friendly neighborhood Anthropocene star, sign out from the AIR archives, I'd like to leave you with a poem by Jacinta, The Six-Lane Freeway of Deceit. Be well, and don't forget to breathe. Saad, ki
4: six-lane.
1: Emerging from the forests of Saranda, people are gathering in a certain village. Women with infants in slings on their backs, the elderly scaling the valley, leaning on their staffs, the young leaping over the hills and children counting the Sakwa trees as they walk. They gather not for a protest march, but a football tournament to watch, where a goat is to be the winner's trophy. No sooner is a child from his mother's milk weaned than he is made a member of some youth club in Saranda, while something else goes on behind the scenes. A football instead of books is placed in every hand that may someday join in protesters against the illicit mining of their land. To win goats as tournament trophies, kick to the curb, are books and studies. Slowly but steadily, the child inhales the addictive opium of football. Eyes, dazed and deadened by the game, fail to see beyond victory and loss, their strife and struggle for survival. Agents of mining corporations knock on every village door. And no sooner is uttered a desperate sigh of hunger than disease, unemployment and helplessness are shoved down their throats. Grains, medicines, utensils and clothes. And the family carried away as labourers for a pittance pay. In the name of progress now, there are to be four- and six-lane roads, but those labouring away on concrete and asphalt are unaware. They know not how many more free lanes of deceit run through the forests of Saranda.
0: Today's artist was Abhishek Hasra. Our guest journalist was Aruna Chandrasekhar. Remember to check out our platform on www.stage.tva21.org. The editor-in-chief of Stage is Francesca thyssen Carlos Surroth is the director of Thyssen-Bornemisa Art Contemporary. Soledad Gutiérrez is our content curator. John Aranguren is our curatorial assistant. Our producers are Soledad and myself, Igor Ramírez. Nina Esperanda is our project manager. And our theme music is by Karl Michael von Hauswolf. Thank you for listening. <laughs>